Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Zoe Skamen, the founder of Bodacious, a full-service strategy studio, Zoe has taken her skills all over the world to Sydney, New York, Ethiopia, and beyond, working for the likes of Droga5, Ridley Scott Creative Group, and Adidas. Describing herself as a Swiss army knife, Zoe has developed a TV series for a huge fashion label, branded a celebrity or two, and is the go-to guru for expertise such as brand planning, entertainment strategy, and opening a can of beans on a camping holiday. Zoe says, we need to stop fetishizing the frameworks and leaning so heavily on theory and rationale. Instead, we need to broaden our horizons, unleash our imaginations and spend a bit of time losing ourselves in other worlds entirely. That's where we'll find the magic. Welcome to the show, Zoe. Thank you for that introduction and thank you very much for having me. Right, let's start with our seven quickfire questions. So Mac or PC? Definitely Mac. New York or Sydney? Sydney. TikTok or Twitch? TikTok. Ridley Scott or Travis Scott? Ooh, um, that's a really tough one. I'm going to say Ridley for now. (laughs) George Orwell or H.G. Wells? H.G. Wells. Nice. Alien or Blade Runner? Blade Runner. And finally, bold or audacious? Audacious. Nice. You sailed through those. (laughs) I'm decisive. Yeah, I wanted to trip you up on at least one, so um, I'll have to try harder. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. We always like to start from the beginning, and so to kick things off, can you share with us how it all started for you, in in, in particular what your route in looked like, because it's rarely a simple linear path of school, university, shiny job in a shiny agency. Sure. I mean, I, I didn't go to university and I didn't actually get any A-levels. Um, so my journey into advertising was kind of a bit of a mess and a bit of a happy accident. So I ended up putting myself on a beach in Greece when I should have been sitting my A-levels. Um, so I didn't actually get any, as I said, came back from Greece, didn't have the option of going to university and just thought I'd quite like to start working. And I quite literally answered an ad in a local newspaper that just said, you know, young, enthusiastic person wanted for startup. And it turned out to be a search agency, pay-per-click agency. And I just went in there as a kind of coffee person, account person. And I think I was in the right place at the right time. And it just kind of took off from there. You know, one of my first clients was a pornography client. So I would create keyword lists and write advertising for all manner of pornography categories. That was quite eye-opening. But it allowed me to to sort of travel into London occasionally because this one was in Surrey specifically and to sit within bigger agencies, so Walker Media, All Response Media, uh, MNC Saatchi, et cetera. And I just suddenly had this vision of this advertising world that, to be honest, I had absolutely no idea that it even existed. 
Um, so I think that was the sort of happy accident. And then it just kind of went from there. And I don't think I've ever been overly deliberate about how it's grown. I've just kind of been magpie-esque and, and sort of followed the next shiny thing from one to the next. Um, but yeah, it was super based on luck and absolutely nothing else. That's a great answer. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased on, on several counts there. Mostly, well, certainly most immediately because you said you had that magpie-esque quality. And I think most talented and successful people in our industry and overlapping fields all have that inquisitive want to kind of question everything element to their to their makeup but also I like the fact that you said it was a bit of a mess and a happy accident because I think it's something I've noticed more as my nieces and nephews reach an age where they're anxious about routes into careers there's there's a misunderstanding that these routes are always quite logical and linear and the more people I talk to, the more I realize that, that it can be very random and, and a happy accident. And I think that's an important thing for people to hear. Absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing, obviously, just to mention is that I was earning absolutely nothing. So I think I was earning about £11,000 a year, but I was lucky. So I had my parents to be able to actually, you know, help support me and that kind of stuff. And if I'd earned money like that and I didn't have that to fall back on, it probably wouldn't have been such a happy accident and it wouldn't have been a possibility. So I still think it matters, you know, in terms of the support system that you have in place. And, and that is a massive part of luck as well. But I, I'm not necessarily a big believer in, you know, university or masters when it comes to the advertising uh, world. I think you can, you know, if you really want to get into the sort of the management track and go from there. But for example, about uh, eight years ago, I was guest lecturing at King's College University on their master's program for marketing and, you know, getting up and, and talking about my experience in agencies and, and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed someone in the audience and I recognized his face and I realized that he was a year above me at school and he had still not left education. He was in his second master's and he still hadn't gone out into the big wide world and, and got a job. And I was fascinated by that because I just thought, you know, he's, he's kind of trapped himself in this incredibly expensive higher education cycle, which he's now going to spend the next 20 years paying off. And I've been out in the real world kind of, you know, going from job to job and, and kind of growing my career without any of that scaffolding. And I just found it really interesting how we'd both chosen such divergent paths, but mine obviously had worked out quite well. Yeah, that, might, that reminded me, you, you've likely seen this, of, of Rob Campbell's fairly infamous slide when he was giving a talk at McKinsey, asking everyone in the audience who would run a company or experience running a company to put their hand up. And of course, nobody did. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think sometimes you've just got to, you've got to go for it. But I, you know, it, it is difficult. I think, I think in advertising nowadays, it is who you know and how you get those introductions. But I don't necessarily think that, you know, the path of university and then portfolio school is the one that you absolutely have to go down. No, well, I, I couldn't agree more. So I'm, so I'm delighted you've, you've concluded the, the same. And then in terms of that magpie-esque fueled route, if you like, what was that trail of shiny things that led you to a strategy? Uh, strategy was also an accident, actually. So I was an account manager at this pay-per-click agency. And then I moved to an agency called Booth Lockett and Macon, which is uh, then got bought by Havas. And again, I was as a kind of an account manager, but I was also doing stuff as uh, so a digital media mostly. And then I moved to Australia when I was 22. And I went to Mediacom. And I was a group digital manager, which essentially is like an account director. And I was so young, and I had absolutely no emotional maturity whatsoever. And I was managing people and I was absolutely awful at it. And I couldn't really give a shit about, you know, their gripes and their pay rises and that kind of stuff. I just, it wasn't in my wheelhouse to care about. 
And there was, um, I had an amazing CEO that came over from London, and I'd already been at Mediacom Sydney for a while, called Toby Jenner, who I believe is now the global CEO of uh, WPP or Group M. And he was brilliant. And I remember him kind of saying, you know, you're not very good at this in terms of the account management stuff, because I'd had a couple of complaints from people. And he sort of, we did a couple of pitches together and he said, I think you're a strategist and that's what I think you need to be focusing on. And then they brought a guy called Steph Burford over from London, who's now the CSO for IPG uh, globally. He's amazing. And I started picking up and kind of following him around and, and sort of learning how he thought and what he did. And that was the first eye opener for me for strategy. So it wasn't necessarily that I'd consciously chosen that as a route. It was that I was told that I was you know, shit at the other job and that this might be the best way for me to keep my visa. Um, and that was the way it had to happen. So I was like, I don't care as long as I can stay in the country. You can make me whatever you want me to be. But I'd never heard of strategy and I had no idea what it entailed until I started actually shadowing someone. Yeah, amazing. Well, that's, that's obviously a, it's, it's a luxury that few are afforded to shadow you yeah. know, really good people in those types of environments. So that's great. So without losing our thread, what did you like about Sydney, assuming you did like it? And the reason I ask, uh, not least because I think it's relevant, but I have a two nieces and a brother that, that live in Sydney and have done their whole lives. I loved it. I think it is, especially because I was there for the majority of my 20s, I felt like it was, you know, a, first of all, it's absolutely gorgeous and the food and the atmosphere and you never really feel like you're at work. And I remember being at Mediacom and it was like 4.30 on a Friday and the office was completely dead. Everyone had fucked off basically. And I was sat there going, what have I missed? Because I was so used to working late in London and I realized that actually the the work-life balance in Sydney is completely the opposite. So it's very much that you work in order to then go and enjoy life. And if you're not at the beach at, by five o'clock on a Friday, what the hell are you doing with your time? And that was such an eye-opener for me. And I loved it. And I really embraced it. And I also think from a Sydney perspective, especially when it came to career progression, it was such a tight-knit community of agencies and you know by the time I'd moved agencies four times I think I'd done the same Westpac pitch five times as well and you end up working with the same kind of people but it's a really for me a really kind of effective way of learning and connecting with a very small group that then helped to lift me up and helped to transport me in the right direction which I don't necessarily think I would have gotten if I'd stayed in London or if I'd moved to New York instead at that point in my career so I do think that the, the closeness and the smallness of the Sydney agency scene really helped as a springboard to get me where I wanted to get. That's great. So by your own admission, then you've bounced around uh, roles, industries, even even countries, cities within. What was it in particular about strategy that kind of kept you interested and assuming it did keep you interested? Was that something that just felt really comfortable for you versus your previous experiences? Yeah, I think from a strategy perspective, what I really loved about it was the curiosity and the problem solving aspect. So, you know, if you're in a more traditional job and it's more about going along a linear process and, and getting stuff done, you know that you just got to do this and then you do this and then you do this. And eventually you get to a point where you finish whatever it is that you're doing. And with strategy, what I loved was the fact that you really didn't know where it was going to take you. And it was almost like giving you permission to fall down a rabbit hole of discovery and searching and connecting dots and trying to figure out what the real nub of the issue was and then obviously figuring out how you can solve it. So I think it's just that it's that feeling of having the switch flicked in your brain where suddenly you can just go on your your deep dives and your research missions and 
dig up loads of really interesting nuggets. And I loved that part of it. And so no two briefs were ever the same, no two approaches were ever the same, no two people were ever the same in terms of who I worked with and how they worked as well, which I found fascinating. So for me, it was just kind of an endless stream of interesting stuff and an endless stream of learning. And I think that I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who's a lifelong learner. So I love the ability to always find a new discovery or a new fact or a new insight or something that then just kind of goes, oh, I had no idea that that was a thing or I didn't know that that existed. And that's what I think keeps me going even today. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I think I'm remarkably similar in that respect. I, in fact, I remember annoying people at previous agencies because I was always asking questions. You then most, so most recently, although not currently, you had a lot of experience in the kind of entertainment world with Ridley Scott. How did that differ from the more traditional ad industry makeup? Totally different. Um, so I was completely out of my depth when I first took that role because I didn't know what they wanted me to do. I don't think they knew what they wanted me to do. And I felt like the dumbest person in the room. So every single time I'd walk into a room, you would almost be speaking a different language. And I had a little glossary on the back of my notebook, you know, when they were talking about distribution methodology and different filming techniques and, you know, different stages of production journeys. I had never come across anything like this before. And I think when it comes to strategy within a traditional ad agency, there is a kind of, you know, baton passing linear process where the brief comes in, the strategist has a look at it, they figure out, you know, basically what the lens should be or what the direction should be, they pass it off onto creative and, and so it goes. But within the world of entertainment, the the director and the writer and the producer are king. And so you need to find a way to almost kind of insert strategy and insert yourself where you're not really wanted. And to find a way to, you know, help and add value and figure out how things could be done better or differently or in a more interesting light. And often that doesn't always come at the start of a process. It kind of rarely comes at the start of a process. So you need to just figure out the small ways where you can add value throughout. And at the beginning of a project, it could be that you have a chat with a director and you look at different funding models for production, for example, or halfway through, it could be that you start to input on what you think a distribution strategy should look like if actually you think the streamers might not be the best way to go. Uh, or it could be looking at brand partnerships halfway through filming to look at ancillary content and who you would bring in and how you help further the narrative in some way that doesn't detract from the film and you know the main scope of what they're producing. So it was almost quite scrappy, quite kind of all over the place. And you just have to be comfortable being able to have a myriad of different discussions and to you know be useful at any end of the spectrum. And I think that was quite a challenge for me because... I was so used to being very good at what I did and then going into a job where you spend the first three months thinking, what the hell am I doing here? It's quite disconcerting, um, but actually it's a really good learning curve and that's what I'm always after. So I guess I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to diagnose the, the constant. So I guess it's taking, it was taking that natural curiosity and questioning everything on a much broader scale at Ridley Scott. Absolutely, and it's everything from you know, how you actually go about making something to revenue models and distribution. So, you know, what are new ways of making money within the world of television and film and, and IP, you know, looking at 
new forms of influences, creators, monetization models, uh, new forms of actually pulling content together. So what does a film look like if it's not 120 minutes and it's not linear and a chronological way of telling stories, for example? So it was just constantly looking at what is new, what is different, what is applicable, and being able to to basically, again, dive into those rabbit holes and read up on stuff so that you do actually have some value to add in a room with all of those incredible creative people and also being comfortable with the fact that there is no process, there is no defined strategy purpose uh, for you as a person in that room or in that organization and you've got to make that job your own. Yeah, and is that quite, was it quite... um... I'm trying to think of the right word. Empowering is such a wanky word, but I can't <laughs> think of anything else under pressure. But I've, I've, uh, you talk there about like literally, obviously questioning everything. And I've read a brilliant article that I think it was APG uh, article that you wrote about those business models and the kind of commercial models that ca- can and could exist. And what was re- what I personally found really interesting is, is that freedom to challenge something that people might assume is just the way it is because that's just the way it is, rather than saying, well, let's have a look about how else we could break it down. For a, so you give a few examples, and one of them might be commercializing individual chapters of a book instead of buying the whole book, for example. But mm. was that rewarding and was that actually quite nice to open it up and start challenging everything? Or was that almost too much and overwhelming? Because it could be both. I don't think it was too much and overwhelming because that's just kind of not who I am as a person. I I love challenging and I love trying to push boundaries. I think it was hugely inspirational for me and it almost gave me a new lease of life because I was losing that in agency world. I was kind of thinking, you know, there's nothing new under the sun and I think I'm kind of done and what can I do next? And actually going to a business like Ridley Scott just you know reignited that flame of of curiosity and challenging convention and doing things differently and discovery that I had been lacking for probably about a year or so maybe a bit longer having said that you know you're also in a business who are really bloody good at what they do they've got a very specific way of doing things and they cannot be questioned necessarily because they're not failing in any way so what you're trying to do is you're trying to open up discussions about change and challenge the status quo when in their eyes, the status quo works just fine. Thank you very much. Um, so that can be quite difficult. So yes, it opens up your brain and your curiosity and that fire that you have within you. But the reality of actually making stuff happen is incredibly difficult. And actually, that can be quite dispiriting unless you've got quite a thick skin and you know resilience within you because you're going you're gonna to get knocked down by nine directors out of 10 before one of them says, that's interesting, maybe we should give it a go. Yeah, yeah, of course. So post this uh, role, what made you decide to go out on your own and start Audacious? I think it's because I had not found a home for myself and I had struggled to be able to explore all of the different facets of myself and all of the different areas that interest me within one role. So the last time I probably felt at home proper was at Naked in Sydney, which was just this most, it's difficult to describe, but it's such a magical place, or it was such a magical place filled with just delinquent thinkers. You know, they called them brilliant misfits, um, who were quite difficult, challenging, creative uh, people who loved to prod and push buttons and piss people off, but in a nice way, and just kind of always question, why do we do things the way we do things? Surely there's a better way. 
And I was so lucky to have been there at that time when that magic was alive. And it, you know, it died sadly uh, just towards the end because of mergers and, and problems with the holding company and all that kind of stuff. But it was just such a magical period. And it allowed you to explore so many different things and to be surrounded by such incredibly interesting people. And after that, I was kind of spoiled. You know, I couldn't find a place like that. And I searched quite literally all over the world. You know, I went to another agency in Sydney. I came back to London. I went to a couple of places. I went to New York. I went to Ethiopia. And I just couldn't find that place because I always felt like I was too boxed in and too pigeonholed. And every single time I tried to push boundaries, it was like, yeah, that's great. Very interesting. Can you just stick to what you're supposed to do? And so the idea of me starting my own thing was the ability for me to pick and choose projects that could span the full gamut, you know, from organizational design and psychology through to new product development, through to traditional kind of brand and communication strategy, uh, through to revenue models. And there just wasn't a role or an agency or a consultancy that existed that would allow me to do something like that. So the only option, you know, was to go it solo. Nice. And and how has that been going solo? It's been great, actually. I've been really lucky. I think I was relatively well set up because of my network that I've been building over the last you know, decade or so all over the place. And I always make sure that I am you know, quite a strong presence whenever I'm in with a client or in a room. And I try to be memorable. And obviously, clients move. And when they move, they move to a new client uh, business and you get moved with them. So on that front, from a new business perspective, I've, I have been lucky, which has been great. And I have also been lucky on variety. You know, I've done such a huge range of projects. And I deliberately like to throw myself in at the deep end. So if there's a project that I don't automatically know how to do, that's the project that I'm going to go after because I get bored quite easily. And I'm always, as I said, wanting to learn and wanting to you know, broaden my skill sets or fall down another rabbit hole that I've not been down before. So the more kind of scary and unknown a project is or an outcome is, the more likely I am to try and chase it down. Fantastic. I think this leads naturally quite well into sci-fi, but I, I really want to talk to you more about sci-fi because... You donated an incredible isolated talk titled Is Sci-Fi the Next Frontier for Strategists? And the I guess the first 20 minutes or so of this conversation have really uh, been focused around that kind of flex of asking questions and pushing boundaries, which, which to my mind just lends itself perfectly to sci-fi. So what first got you interested in the link between sci-fi and strategy? Have you always been a huge sci-fi fan? Um, I don't think I've always been a gigantic sci-fi fan per se. I think I've been a gigantic fantasy fan. Um, so, you know, you will be hard pressed to find a bigger Harry Potter geek than me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Twilight books and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, but also, you know, and also sci-fi as well. And I have always been really interested in the idea of world building, you know, so I absolutely loved Lord of the Rings, for example, because, you know, what he created was a world and, um, you know, with a language and with factions and with behaviors and with myths and rituals and history and all of those kind of things. And, you know, the same goes for Harry Potter. And I've always been fascinated by people's ability to do that. And then when I started specifically working with Ridley Scott, he was so famous for sci-fi and creating sci-fi worlds. And 
you know, he was responsible for the creation of the cyberpunk aesthetic um, with Blade Runner. So that kind of slightly dystopian, rundown, punkish, fashionable, neon world. And that was something that, you know, leapt from the page uh, through his imagination and onto screen. And what fascinated me was I started kind of talking to people about the power of sci-fi for imagination. And I stumbled across you know, a couple of different nuggets, you know, such as, you know, what I mentioned in the talk with the, you know, the inspiration for the Kindle, for example, for Jeff Bezos coming from a sci-fi book um, and a bunch of other inventions. And obviously the famous thing of Elon Musk, where he says that he reads, he tries to read 10 sci-fi books a month if he has time. And it's all about feeding your imagination and thinking about possibilities. And it's that leap of possibility and imagination that you get within world building where the context is so rich that you can really imagine the use case and also just the potential for a piece of technology or a tool or a system or a process or something um, which then actually starts to feed the innovation cycle and rather than having blinkers on and sitting in a room and going right what's the future of mobile phones which is so narrow what we can be thinking about instead is what is the future of communication if, you know, the context is this and the climate is this and interoperability looks like this and relationships look like this. And suddenly, you know, fuck the mobile phone. What else could we be using, you know, at this stage? And that's why, you know, Elon Musk is talking about the fact that he's going to be announcing the latest um, update for Neuralink this week, which is the chip that he wants to try and put in people's brains to allow you to have some sort of telepathic link with external technology. And that kind of stuff comes from sci-fi and imagination, but without the context and without the richness to use as a springboard, you end up going down such a narrow path based on what you know right now, but your imagination can open up, you know, in such an incredible, you know, beautiful way. If you can see a much more, you know, narrative built place uh, with depth and nuance and layers. And I think that's what got me really excited. Yeah, the parallels with strategy are the kind of playing out scenarios. And it's that what if question, whether it's what if we did this, or what if we tried that? Or what if this looked like this, and then playing that out. And you make the point that it's expansive and not restrictive. So it does give you that. It's almost like creating a safe space for your mind and creativity to just wander. Exactly. And I think it's something that we're missing. And I think that especially for me, over the last decade or so, I have noticed not just strategy, but just the way that we work as an ad industry has shifted to short termism, to speed over rigor and exploration. And we're just like a conveyor belt. And we just spit stuff out over and over again, the next brief comes in, the next brief comes in. And it's forcing us down from big, expansive thinking, as you mentioned, through to tactical, one-off, project-based crap, to be honest, that we're just kind of throwing out into the world. And it's because we're not building space and time for us to actually do those explorations. And instead, you know, we're focusing on quickly jumping on the back of a meme or, you know, a cultural moment or, you know, a tactical product push. All of those things are still important. But I think at the same time, what we're missing is that ability to really look five years ahead or 10 years ahead or even further and to help advise our clients from a consultancy perspective on actually what that should mean for their business, not necessarily just their communications, but 
the product and the services they might want to think about getting into or even you know adjacent categories that they've yet to explore which could be of real interest especially you know when you're looking at certain categories dying so car manufacturing for example where does ford go next and ford are one of the ones that are doing this looking into this future and actually thinking about what the possibilities could be for a car company in a world with no cars and that's the kind of stuff that you know ideally strategists need to be starting to get into but they are hampered at the moment by the ways that we work and i think that's just such a shame so i'd love to find a way to build more space and more time, you know, into a strategic process that is probably divorced from a comms planning process because it's very, very different. But I think it's such a valuable thing that we're we're missing, and I've noticed the decline of that over the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. I think you're you're absolutely spot on, and and it's that freedom to to not worry about being right or wrong. It's just that freedom to try and do and just see see where it where it ends up. Whereas I think that kind of short termism approach is always about constantly measuring and somehow demonstrating. I mean, you could easily argue, and I frequently do, that we're demonstrating it in hugely flawed ways, whether something is effective, because we seem to have misunderstood efficiency for effectiveness in in our worlds and the types of channels that we use. And it's so focused on that short-term ROI or however it might need to be um, articulated on a piece of paper Whereas the worlds of sci-fi looking 10 years ahead and exploring an infinite amount of what-if questions isn't even about being right or wrong. It's just about discovery. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing that I've noticed as well. So I've been teaching with APG for the last seven years, and I teach the first module for essential planning skills. So basically, you know, strategists who are a couple of years in, and I teach business strategy, which is, you know, how do you get to the one big strategy for your organization? And the first couple of exercises that I do is deliberately to trip them up. And I know they're going to fall into this trap. And it is basically that they jump to solutions rather than problem definition. And it is the way that we have been taught to think over the last couple of years. And that goes back to short-termism. It goes back to tactics. It goes back to you know quick fix ROI, all of that kind of stuff. And they jump straight into, we should be doing this. And then I'll push back and go, okay, but what problem are you trying to solve? And they're all sat there blank face going, shit, I haven't thought about that. And it's one of the biggest skills that you need as a strategist is problem definition. And you need to spend 90% of your time figuring out what is the problem that you're actually really trying to get to? What is the nub of, you know, what the issue is for the organization or what is the problem with the product or whatever it is that you're looking at? Or even, you know, what is the societal problem that you're trying to fix and how do you break that down? And once you've got that problem definition, then the solution almost seems obvious. But it's that ability to really get into problems um, and the way of kind of holding what ifs, as you said, that we are moving away from and we're jumping into quick fixes. And it's something that I try and push so much when I'm teaching is please don't jump to solution. I want you to give me six different problems before you even think about how anything like this can be solved. And it's just a, it's a very different way of using your brain and your mind, which I think is necessary for, you know, sci-fi futures and, and what if scenario planning and world building, because it's not about solutions. It's about exploration and uncertainty and being comfortable in that uncertainty. But it's something that we're, we're definitely losing. Do you think agencies typically aren't afforded the time or maybe they just don't um, afford it the significance to correctly diagnose problems then? Yeah, I think they're sausage factories, most of them at the moment. And it's such a shame because they didn't used to be. You know, there was a real 
ability to get into the sandbox and you know piss about for a bit and really think things through and ask what ifs and I just don't think we give ourselves the space to be able to do that anymore I think it is as I said it's a conveyor belt it is a baton passing you know from strategist to creative to producer out the door and then on to the next and we also don't really work together particularly well so I've definitely noticed more silos within agency. So, you know, the strategists have their part and then the creatives have their part. And I talk often to younger strategists and younger creatives about when I was working at Naked, we had strategy partnerships. So in a similar way that you have an art director and a copywriter in Naked, we had a junior strategist and a senior strategist who were attached at the hip. And it was a brilliant way for us to use each other as sounding boards, to get ideas from the front line of culture versus making sure that you've got the classic marketing, you know, four or five Ps in the mix and all of that kind of stuff. And we just don't do that. I, I find it increasingly isolated in terms of the way that we work and the baton passing doesn't help that either. So we're just, again, we're moving further away from each other. We're doing it faster. And what we actually need to do is to slow down, give ourselves a space and all just kind of get in the sand pit together. Yeah, I think that sandpit point is crucial and, and not affording ourselves the time to piss about is, is, is exactly what we need to be doing more of. The sadly late but great Sir Ken Robinson uh, quote of, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original, yeah. is, is, is never been so true in, 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 the, in our world. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, when I say pissing about, it doesn't mean having a ping pong table in the office you know, or doing a delivery night on a Thursday, you know, where you all get pizza and have a beer. That's not what I mean. It needs to be kind of structured. You know, it needs to actually have proper time put in to be able to do that kind of stuff. And we do need to make a safe space for being wrong. And, you know, there was a fantastic study that Google did uh, probably about five years ago, maybe four years ago on basically what made a high performing team. And it was called Project Aristotle. And they studied teams and specifically high performing teams within Google. So from Google X through to all the product teams and all that kind of stuff as well. And they looked at what are the ingredients of the best ones, the ones that produce the best work, the best ideas who work in the, you know, the most fluid fashion. And the number one thing that came out was psychological safety. So feeling like you could be supported by your peers, even if you said something stupid, or even if you weren't feeling yourself that day, they could pick up the slack for you in some way. So that that need to feel like you can be your full, unedited, slightly wrong, you know, slightly silly self on occasion, that's what made, you know, the real difference in the difference between the high performance teams and the ones that weren't doing so well. Yeah, and that's another great point. I I um I tried to encourage younger or maybe less experienced people that I work with to ask stupid questions in meetings. Just allow yourself one stupid question, just just because everyone else is too scared to ask it, and it could lead to something. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the difficulty is, again, with strategy, is we've got this belief that's come from somewhere where you're supposed to be the smartest person in the room. And I think that's hugely limiting. And so I will be the person in the room and I will put my hand up and I'll sometimes I'll preface it and I'll say, sorry, this might be a stupid question, but... And, you know, I'm asking questions that, you know, I, I don't know the answers to all the time, or I kind of do, but I don't want to guess. And actually, if I get the insight from the client, that would be the best way to do it. And also clients love talking about their business and they know it inside out. And actually so many of the gems and the insights that you need are in their brains. You just need to find a way of getting them out. So a lot of the time I'll sit in, you know, a, a client meeting, for example, and say, this might be a stupid question, but can you explain your distribution strategy to me? 
how does it work? You know, I know, for example, if it was an Adidas, I know you sell in third party retailers like JD Sports and you've got flagship stores and you've also got D2C Ecom. How does it all work together? And then I just let them flow with it. And actually, I get so much information from that than I would ever get from reading a financial report online. And you've got to have the ability as a strategist to ask those stupid questions and to get that information because the smartest person in the room isn't the person that knows all of the answers. The smartest person in the room is the one that can put themselves out there to ask the right questions to inform everybody else. Yeah, exactly that. There's too much pressure on sounding right. Um, and as you say, on on appearing to have the right answer and not asking the right questions. I've always thought the smartest thing to say in to most questions is, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Exactly. Yeah. And I've got a lot more comfortable with that, you know, in the last however many years. I think, you know, when I was 25, I was much more of the vein of like, I need to know all of the things and that I wouldn't ask the question. And I would end up shooting myself in the foot because I'd go back in cocky as hell, thinking that I knew everything. And they'd go, oh, no, that really big thing that the entire strategy hinges on is actually wrong. And then that's my fault because I didn't ask the question. Uh, so now I have no fear of, you know, of asking those kind of things. And, you know, if I feel like it is a stupid question, I will do the self-deprecating thing of this may be a stupid question, but or I'm sure you've already covered this, but I, I've slipped, slipped my mind. Can you re-explain it to me? It's not hard to do. And it makes all the difference. Yeah, well said. And um you have a great article uh, on breaking non-fiction addiction kind of issues that we might be facing so it's not it's not solely about reading and understanding and exploring uh, fiction it's it's also understanding the effect that non-fiction is having on on the industry yeah i mean this is this is like you're risking me going off on a tangent now because i feel quite passionately about this um but i have noticed especially again, you know, in the, in the sort of strategy industry and especially strategy Twitter, this obsession with frameworks and boxes and, you know, going back in time and, you know, looking at Ehrenberg Bass and, and all that kind of stuff. And yes, you know, those things have value. It's like, it's important to understand the theories and the frameworks and that kind of stuff. But my view is it's important to understand them so that you can reinvent them and make them your own. And a box is only as useful as the information that it contains and the ideas that it contains and the connections that you're making with it. And if your cultural references are nonfiction books and frameworks and theories and old white dudes that wrote about advertising 50 years ago, then what, what are you going to come up with? There's nothing new. There's nothing interesting. And so my big push at the moment is can we please stop fetishizing these frameworks and you know talking about advertising theory because that's not going to help us the biggest thing that we're lacking at the moment as an industry is imagination and creativity and off the wall bonkers thinking and you know the campaigns and the ideas that we that we champion from 10 years ago 20 years ago were utterly bizarre you know think about old spice man on a horse think about subservient chicken where the fuck did those ideas come from? They certainly <laughs> did not come from reading advertising theory from 40 years ago. We are losing that creativity. And I think we're losing it because we are so obsessed with rationalizing everything. And actually, this goes back to the point of, as you said, of we're so obsessed with being right. So it's almost like the more rational we are, the more black and white we are, the more ability we are we have to say whether we are definitively right or definitively wrong. And that's where we've got ourselves stuck. 
And actually, going back to that sandbox, is you need to have the cultural and creative and imagination references to be able to connect really bizarre dots and see what you come out with. So that's why I'm a huge fan of fiction. And it doesn't need to be fantasy fiction. It can be any kind of fiction. But as I go, as I said earlier on, when it came to, you know, the Harry Potters and um, the kind of world builders, that's where I always go back to because what they managed to do is they managed to weave narratives and storylines and mythologies and characterizations and empathy and um, you know fear and loss and all of those things that are so unbelievably important to how we connect with people. And I hate calling them consumers because that just kind of makes them, again, sausage factory people. And the way that I look at people is we need to connect on an empathetic level or an excitement level or an entertainment level. And again, if you're not feeding your brain with all of those things, then all you're left with is your black and white frameworks. And no wonder that the work is becoming more rational and the work is becoming more does what it says on the tin, which is, you know, going back to the uh, lemon study from IPA, which says exactly that. So, you know, he went back and looked at advertising and ad breaks for the last 20 years in Coronation Street. And the biggest thing that he found is that advertising is becoming less about storylines and characterization and more about rational, functional benefits. And, you know, we're bored by that. And we, we bang on about it all the time as an industry, but we're doing it to ourselves by not filling our brains with the right stuff. Yeah, it's really important points about frameworks, especially. In fact, I had the... Um... This is a, a slight parallel, but I had the pleasure of talking to a, a good friend of yours, Bob Gower, recently, and he described himself as having, uh, I think it was the Myers-Briggs he was talking about. He said he's the Myers-Briggs type that forgets what Myers-Briggs type he is. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. I love that. Um, and he's so creative and he's so multifaceted. And that is what makes him such an interesting person because, you know, he's lived many, many lives in one and is fascinated by so many different things, you know, from art to psychology to love to, you know, all of those things. And I think that those people are the ones that make the most interesting thinkers and strategists. And they're the ones you want in your organization because they can connect dots from so many different places and spaces and ideas and cultures and backgrounds and, you know, suddenly one and one equals 10,000 and you're off to the races. Whereas if you're only learning one way of doing things and one definitive right framework, you mean, you're just going to get stuck in place that there's no way for you to be able to progress from there. And that's why I really wish, especially young strategy Twitter, they're so influenced by this stuff. And I just want to shake each and every one of them and scream at them and go, put the fucking books down and pick up a Harry Potter or pick up anything or, you know, watch some art house film or just do something that feeds your imagination. That's the most important thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to keep you way beyond our allotted time, Zoe, because I've just seen how long we've been talking about that one topic. I'm going to have to move us on. I'm going to have to move us on to the listener questions, I think. Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So. Question one is from Yasmin, and Yasmin says, I've seen you tweet a lot about TikTok. What do you think has made the platform so successful? Do you think it will stick around or go the way that Vine did? Oh, God, that's a really big question. Um, I'll yeah, answer the first. Another 45 minutes, I think. <laughs> no, I'll try, I'll try to answer it quickly. <laughs> no, 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 no,
why do I think it's become so successful? I mean, the number one thing is the algorithm and the way that the algorithm works. And the way that the algorithm works is fundamentally different from any social network. So TikTok is not a social network. It's a media network. And when I say social network, I mean something like a Facebook or an Instagram, um, because what happens is you create content and you are sharing that content with people who follow you and you are seeing the content of people that you follow. So it's called a follower graph. That's why it's a social network. It's based on people and connections. Whereas TikTok, totally different. You do not need to follow anyone to be able to get onto TikTok and to start scrolling and to start seeing all of this media. And the reason why is because it's based on an algorithm, um, which is one of the most powerful that I've ever come across, um, which essentially starts to serve you content. And depending on what you watch and what you like, it will start to serve you similar content. So it personalizes itself to you so fast um, that it becomes something that you get addicted to really, really quickly. Um, so it just becomes a sort of endless scroll, but the content is amazing. And the reason that the content is amazing is, again, down to the algorithm. So a bunch of different creators can submit, you know, funny videos and that kind of stuff. And again, with the algorithm, what will happen is that TikTok will start serving the one that's getting the most traction. So not only is the experience personalized to you, where the content finds you as opposed to you finding the content from your followers, but also the most incredible stuff rises to the top, again, based on that algorithm. So it's got that kind of duality of, you know, discovery that's personalized to me, but also stuff that I don't need to go and find. It kind of just finds itself in front of my eyes. And suddenly I'm like, God, this is amazing. So the virality in terms of people being able to go from zero to bedroom rock star, literally overnight, I think there was one uh, woman specifically who wrote a country music song that went from her in her bedroom to number one on the iTunes chart in 12 hours. Thank you. Thanks to TikTok is just unbelievable and unlike anything we've ever seen before. So I think that's the big difference and why it's so big. And in terms of whether or not it's going to stick around, I think that totally depends on what's happening with the US government and the sale at the moment. Because obviously, as of today, TikTok are now suing Trump over the executive order uh, to have them banned from the country. But I think the challenge is going to be if they do sell, if they sell to the likes of a Microsoft, for example, ByteDance still own that algorithm. And I would find it very bizarre if ByteDance decided to give the algorithm to Microsoft as part of the TikTok sale. So I do have a concern as to when that sale happens. TikTok, with its name and its platform, will exist. But I think it will be a very different product from what we can see right now. That's fascinating. I wasn't aware of the algorithm there. I mean, you, you would think whoever, whoever would look to acquire, be it Microsoft or who else, that's where the value is in that algorithm. But exactly. as you say, it's not something they'd want to want to release no do you think there is a case for a kind of anti echo chamber type algorithm uh, maybe less so tiktok but we can probably quite fairly criticize a lot of social medias for creating echo chambers which mm. can lead to all sorts of problems i almost want to see an algorithm at play a basic very primitive one a bit like on say on amazon people who bought this also bought i think we need a bit more people who bought this never even considered buying this yes and no so yes from a philosophical perspective i agree with you but then think about the user experience so if i'm on a platform like tiktok and i'm being served content that i don't agree with so say for example it's republican content or you know people who are anti-abortion or uh, people who are religious fanatics in some capacity, 
yes, it's important for me to understand the wider realm of the world and, and different perspectives, but am I going to go back to that platform on a regular basis to scroll through content that I don't like? Probably not. And that's why it's so difficult when it comes to, you know, social media and algorithms and that kind of stuff to break out of the filter bubble, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to bring you back and make you sticky onto the platform. And if you want the platform to be sticky for people, you need it to be able to serve stuff that people are enjoying or that they agree with or they find entertaining. And that is where the problem lies when it comes to, you know, widening that bubble. I think TikTok has gone a certain way around the bubble in that you're not necessarily just following like-minded people. So it's not based on people, it's based on individual pieces of content. So there could be one piece of content from a creator that goes absolutely viral and after that, nothing else ever does. So I think that is one step in the right direction in terms of breaking out of the filter bubble per se. But I think that the user experience of serving people stuff that they don't necessarily agree with or shows them a wider view is going to be anathema to how these platforms actually bring users back again and again. Yeah, and I suppose removing that variable of, of followers in its entirety removes that key variable which can cause uh, quite dangerous and often hostile echo chamber type things. And that's, you know, aside from all the moral um, issues which you touched on there also. Yeah, a question two from Zach. Zach asks, going by your isolated talks, you seem to love sci-fi and world building. If you could, which sci-fi world uh, would you want to live in? <laughs> oh, God, that's really hard. I mean, can I stretch and go to Hogwarts? That might be yeah, the place yeah. that I want to live in. I mean, I would love, <laughs> I am still waiting for my invitation from Hogwarts and I'm very pissed off that it's not yet arrived. So I'd probably choose that. The other one, um, actually, that I'm loving at the moment is there is an author called Jessica Townsend, who is super young. I think she's only about 31 or 32. And she has written a trilogy of books called Holopox. And they're kind of young adult novels, but I am unapologetically bloody loving them. And she is she has created this incredible kind of magical world. It's slightly more kiddie, I guess, than Harry Potter, but it's just incredible. And she's she's created this protagonist called Morrigan Crow. Um, and the world that she's made is just so beautiful and fantastical. And it's almost like a kind of magical Victorian London, but actually has nothing to do with London as a place. And it's just wonderful and wacky and, and kind of all over the place. So I think I'd probably choose that. And I've also got a huge girl crush on her, the fact that she's managed to create this world and publish this trilogy, you know, when she's so young. Um, I just think it's absolutely amazing. But yeah, that, that would probably be another one. Amazing. What was that called again? The author is called Jessica Townsend and the trilogy is called Holopox. So H-O-L-L-O-W-P-O-X. They are really, really good. Amazing. I've always wanted to live in um, Gotham City for some reason, which people find weird, but there's something about the kind of... Wouldn't you be scared? I don't know. I, don't, I think that's what appeals, that kind of state of anxiety. And it's almost that carny type lifestyle that seems to be just in abundance in Gotham City has always appealed, which is something I should probably get help for. Yeah. You see, I'm, I'm not really up for the, the dystopia. I'm kind of up for the sort of happy and spell casting and butter beers and you know beautiful kind of mixture of the Cotswolds and Victoriana London and magic and, and that kind of stuff so I don't want to you know wake up every single morning and fear for my life um so that would be <laughs> that would be the thing that would put me off from the normal dystopian stuff yeah they're, they're all fair points 
Um, the final part of the interview then, Zoe, is our four pertinent poses, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? I think the advice I'd give to my younger self would be around the magpie piece. Uh, so go with your gut. And I think that I was always the kind of person that would go with my gut and always the kind of person that would want to explore the unknown and the shiny and the interesting. But I was heavily influenced by, you know, all the people around me who kept telling me that it was wrong um, and who kept telling me that I should stick with the linear career path. And, you know, I'd be a head of strategy or a CEO or something in no time if I just kept sticking with something, whereas I jumped a lot. And, you know, I remember being in an interview in London and they went through my CV and they basically said, you're very unreliable, aren't you? And that really upset me because I just thought, no, I would, I've never seen myself as unreliable. I've seen myself as, you know, insatiably curious. And that's why I jump around. And I don't necessarily think you need to be in a job for six years in the same job, you know, to be very, very good at what you do. I think if you have that ability to soak things up like a sponge and then reapply it and cross pollinate it elsewhere, that's a skill that should be, you know, appreciated and advocated for. And I think that's changing now. But I think when I was in my you know, 20s and early 30s, it absolutely wasn't the case. And I doubted my approach so many times and I doubted that my ability to succeed. So I think my younger self, I would just say, go with it and you know, do what feels right. Yeah, great advice. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Uh, homogeneity, I think, is the number one thing for me. So hiring for in inverted commas, cultural fit, hiring the same people, the same background, the same genders, the same economic outlook, the same geographical location. We keep doing it and we keep hiring people who we think are kooky or quirky, but actually they look and sound exactly like us. They're just kind of hipsters. And I think it is preventing us from, again, as I said previously, that creativity, that imagination, that boundary pushing, because we are all stuck in a filter bubble you know, in the advertising industry. And I think that that cultural homogeneity needs to be changed uh, quite drastically. And I don't really know the answer to that. I think it's probably a number of different things and layers that we need to peel back from, you know, hiring. But also once you've hired a person, how do you actually help them feel comfortable and engaged and safe in an agency that is not necessarily built for them? So I think there's a number of different issues on that front, but I think that the sameness and the, you know, the sounding boards who are actually just the same people as we are is not helping our creative or cultural output whatsoever. Yeah, and I think it's it's almost like, that. I guess it's a, a physical manifestation of echo chambers, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, exactly. We're all wearing the same trainers and the same skinny jeans. We all go to the same bars. You know, we're all taking the same Instagram photos. We've all got the same cultural references um, and we're just not helping one another. No, great answer. Number three, aside from Holopox, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? And feel free to go wild with this because I imagine you've a few. <laughs> now I'm going to have a complete brain freeze and, and not be able to remember <laughs> anything. Um, I think that the best one that I've read recently is probably Why the Crawdads Sing, which is just phenomenal and unlike anything I've read before. And you know, I was equal parts kind of sobbing my heart out and also laughing at the same time. And it's just, it's such a a beautiful book. Um, so I would highly recommend that to people. I think that Brené Brown's writing is amazing. And I think especially when it comes to, you know, leadership and collaboration and ways of working and also ways of, you know, pushing through 
really tough changes and, and difficult ideas within organizations and also within our own teams, it's really important to understand her writing and her research on the importance of vulnerability and how we relate to one another. Um, so during lockdown, I downloaded every single one of the books that she had ever written. And then I listened to them because also her Texan accent was very calming at a time where I really needed it. But I listened to every single one in chronological order. And it was such a, you know, a really powerful thing, you know, I think for me to do. And I, I felt so much um, more open minded. And it was I'd read them all before, but it was just a really nice regrounding in that idea which I think is really nice. And then the other ones that I'm loving at the moment is there is a writer called Naomi Novik. Um, again, this is going to show my kind of fantasy uh, leaning, but she is writing or rewriting um, Polish mythology and folklore. And she's doing it with a feminist twist. So she's got some brilliant books out. There's one called Uprooted. There's one called Spinning Silver. And I think she's got a new one out um, at the moment as well. Uh, so I'm definitely going to be diving into that one soon enough. Um, and then anything kind of magical. I mean, I love Matt Haig's writing. Uh, he's got a new one out called The Midnight Library, which I can't wait to get into. But previously he did one, which I've completely forgotten the name of. But it was a really interesting one. And it was it was about a guy that couldn't die. Um, and he lived from, you know, basically pre-plague all the way through to modern day. And the story would go backwards and forwards. And I just thought it was a really interesting exploration of humanity and relationships. And what does our humanity mean when everyone around us dies and we're on our own? But that was a really fascinating play on that. So I'm always looking for you know, the sort of deeper moral learning or the deeper insight or something when I'm reading a book that is going to tell me something about people or empathy or life or wisdom or something like that. But yeah, my, my bookshelves are absolutely crammed full of a number of different things. But I just, I'm always leaning in between like fiction and I've always got one nonfiction and one fiction on the go, but I can't read nonfiction for some reason. My brain switches off, so I have to listen to it. Okay, amazing. Well, we're going to list um, all of those on this episode so people can check those out. Yeah, and if anyone wants any more book recommendations, just send me a tweet and I'll probably send you a gigantic list. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Do it, people. Uh, number four, then, we, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? I was thinking about this over the last couple of days and... Someone's name popped into my head who I have not been in contact with for eight years, nine years, and I want to dedicate it to her. And her name is Carla Pritchard, and she was my strategy buddy at Naked. And when I first went to Naked, as I mentioned, I was super young. So I was 24. I think I was the youngest person they'd ever hired, and I just kept knocking the door down. I was a fucking nightmare. Um, so I was really smart, but I was so difficult and I was contrary as hell. Um, and I thought I knew everything and I thought I was the best and, and all this kind of stuff. And I got partnered up with Carla and Carla was older than me, much, much more experienced, super glam. She scared the shit out of me when I first met her, but she was incredible. And I was thinking about this the other day because I was thinking about female role models and strategy and how there's such a dearth of them. And that's why I put myself out there so much because I want to be one. And I was thinking about who inspired me to do that. And going right back to the very beginning, it was her. And I think she had just this incredible certainty and power about her and watching her in action was just something to behold. And the way that she could own a room and she never did it from a place of you know, aggression or anything like that. She was just so confident in herself and her knowledge, which she should be because she was amazing. And just how generous she was 
to, you know, spend all of that time and to have all of that patience with a super cocky 24 year old who thought they ruled the world. And she taught me so much, um, not necessarily just in terms of strategy skills, but just in terms of people skills and how to deal with difficult people and, you know, how to own a room, as I said, and how to pull your argument together. But she'd also, you know, rock up, you know, for a strategy soundboarding session with me. And she would have baked gluten-free muffins for us. So she was just wonderful, you know, in, in every possible way. And I don't think I ever really thanked her enough for what she did and, you know, for all of the the time that she spent with me and the energy that she gave in my direction. So I think I'll I'll definitely dedicate it to her. And I think I need to probably drop her an email as well and check in and see how she's doing. Yeah, you should. She sounds she sounds amazing. So you definitely, you definitely should. Okay, cool. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Carla Pritchard. As a final call to action, everyone listening, if you head over to this episode, we'll share some links to everything discussed. How else can people get more Zoe Skaman? I think Twitter is probably the best place. Um, I'm constantly oversharing way too much stuff, which I think is probably just inundating people's um, timelines and pissing them off. But hopefully there are some gems in there as well. And then also my Substack, uh, where I write relatively infrequently. I think I've got a number of half-finished articles that I actually need to get my head into and properly finish. Um, but yeah, whenever I do a podcast or whenever I write something, it's always going to come from my Substack. Um, so that's probably worth signing up to you as well um, if you're interested. But definitely Twitter is the place where I spend most of my time. Perfect. Well, we'll link, we'll link to your, um, your Twitters there too. Amazing. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. I've adored this chat. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Um, and thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the pod. Keep questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.